please take your Bibles and open to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 as we continue our series on the I Am statements of Jesus from the Gospel of John. Um, my subtitle is Jesus in His Own Words. Um, so for those that have been tracking and those that might be new, again, the context here is there are two important things as we come to these I Am statements. The first is that when Jesus says these, Jewish listeners would have understood these statements in the context of uh, God revealing himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when God says, I am, the he, when Moses says, who should I say sent me to rescue you from Egypt? You tell Pharaoh the great I am, the I am has sent me to you. And so Jesus uses the Greek form in, in John basically claiming he was the same one speaking in the Exodus. And the second item of context is for us that when we come to Jesus's turn, come to Jesus here on his own terms, all of us have to try to make sense of what Jesus is claiming. As C.S. Lewis said, Jesus is either a lunatic, he's either a liar, or he is Lord. Um, I watched a video just this week of someone inter, inter, engaging with someone um, out on the streets talking about Jesus, and they said simply, well, I think Jesus was a good teacher. That's not enough. Jesus doesn't leave that to us, and the, the person in the video did a good job of saying, but that's not what Jesus claims to be. Jesus never stops at saying, I'm just trying to teach you how to be a good moral person. Jesus claims to be the very Son of God and Messiah, the one to whom all knees must bow. And so we can't just patronize Jesus by saying he was just some moral, ethical teacher. He's either crazy, like he's lying to everybody, or he actually is Lord. Now, if you're counting, um, we are on the sixth of the seven I am statements. We looked at Jesus claiming, I am the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I am the door of the sheep, I am the good shepherd. We saw last time I preached two weeks ago where Jesus at Lazarus' death, he calls out to them and says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he proved his power there even extends beyond death. And it was the raising of Lazarus there, just a few chapters ago in John, that so incensed the religious leaders to the point that they, they made a pact together, they formed a conspiracy, that they would put Jesus to death. So that's what happened after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. They're like, well, we're going to kill you. okay? And then as we come to John 13 and 14, the context we're in now is that Jesus has made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the very place where the religious leaders are seeking to kill him. Jesus tells his disciples there in John 13, uh, 12 and 13 that I'm going to be lifted up and I'm going to draw all people to myself. He's trying to prepare them for his death by telling them I will only going to be with you a little while longer, less than a week. Okay, From here, Jesus has his final Passover meal with his disciples where he institutes the Lord's Supper and he washes their feet as an example of humility and his role as servant of all. And then he tells them, one of you is going to betray me. One of you that I dip into this dish with me is going to betray me. Now, now that we have the context of John 14, let's get on to the teaching, okay? So, I'm going to read as we go through my outline. I have three basic points, okay? And here it is, okay? As I've just mentioned, my first point is Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. 
That's what is happening at the end of John 13, which is where we'll pick up. John 13, verses 31 through 36. If you're there, say amen. Look, everybody's here. Good. All right, that's a, that's a class participation grade right there. All right, so look at here, uh, John 13, verses 31 through 36. Notice how Jesus prepares his disciples. It says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, there's a several things to unpack here. First, Jesus wants his disciples to know everything that is about to happen. Even though they don't know everything that's about to happen, Jesus tells them, everything that is about to happen will glorify me, Jesus, and the Father. Okay, now that in itself is an incredible statement. Jesus will be lifted up and be glorified. The Father will be glorified in the Son. The Father will glorify the Son in Himself. And this shows an incredible view of Jesus from John. Okay, John the apostle and author here has no problem placing Jesus as equal to the Father. He has no problem saying Jesus and the Father will both be glorified. The God who will not share his glory with another. After all, John began his gospel by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then he says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, if you struggle to believe this part, you're certainly, what John is saying in that sentence, you're certainly going to struggle as we get further into this text in just a few moments. Jesus' point here is that the, he and the Father will be glorified as Jesus is lifted up. Jesus is talking about going to the cross. This is where Jesus will be glorified. The cross will be the place where the glory of God will be most fully displayed. In all of history, as the Son freely gives Himself for the sins of the world, the Father and the Son will be glorified at the cross. The Father will be glorified as His holiness is defended and His mercy and love are unleashed to the undeserving. And the Son will be glorified as He humbly obeys and submits to the Father out of love and He is exalted and given the name that is above every name. So both the Father and Son are going to be glorified. Second, notice that Jesus tells His disciples that He's going to soon leave them. That's the point. He's preparing them for His departure. He told the Jews earlier, I'm going away and you're not going to follow me. And they assumed He's going to commit suicide. That's why we can't follow Him. Now there's no hint of that kind of thinking here. But when Jesus says this, he absolutely shakes 
his disciples. Now put yourself in their shoes. Put yourself in their shoes. They had left all they had to follow Jesus. They had left everything they had. They had sacrificed their jobs, their careers, their relationships to follow him for three years. They left it all on the line to follow Jesus. They had longed for the kingdom of God to come. They desperately wanted the Messianic age to be inaugurated. And though Jesus has hinted throughout that he's going to the cross, they can't bring themselves to believe it. And here Jesus plainly tells them that they cannot come with him where he's going. Now what's the whole life of a disciple? The whole life of a disciple is to be in your master's presence. It is to follow your master. And Jesus says here, no, I'm going and you cannot come with me. Now this is devastating. This is devastating. So much so, I mean, I mean, so much so that Peter, you know, he has to know. Jesus, what do you mean? Where are you going? What do you mean? You, what do you mean I, you can't, what do you mean I can't follow you? What do you mean that, right? Look, look, verses 36 and following. It says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will crow, not crow, till you have denied me three times. Think about that. Peter argues, why can't I follow you? I will die for you. And Jesus says, no, you won't die for me, at least not now. In fact, you're going to deny me. Now that can't be what the disciples want to hear, and that certainly can't be what Peter wants to hear. Now third, notice that Jesus prepares his disciples by giving them clear instructions. He's telling them he's going to leave, Peter objects, but in the midst of this, Jesus gives them clear instructions. He tells them that even though I'm going, you have a job. And your job is to love one another as I have loved you. Jesus says, I leave this commandment with you, that you love one another. You love one another the way that I love you. Now, they don't know yet fully what this means. Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. They, they don't understand yet. What do you mean? Yeah, okay, love each other like you've loved us. Well, you've given us bread. You've walked around healing people. You've been really nice to us, Jesus. Um, what do you mean love each other as I have loved you? This only finds its fullest meaning after they realize that Jesus is going to give himself on the cross for the sins of the world. The love of Jesus is about to be shown in this way, that it is the kind of love that sacrifices itself for the good of others. And even more than that, it sacrifices itself for those that do not in any way, shape, or form deserve it. Now you have to remember that. Some of us in here think... Well, why wouldn't God love me? I'm awesome. You're not awesome. I mean, I might think you're awesome, but you're a sinner. You're separated from God by your sin. That's, that God's love is displayed in that he dies for the completely undeserving. It's not because you deserve it. It's because you are absolutely a wretch of a sinner, and Jesus chooses to love you because that is the nature of his love. Listen, 
Jesus loves them and us without any regard for merit or worth in us. And Jesus says this is how you are to love one another when he leaves. And Jesus says this kind of love will be the defining mark of his disciples. How do you prove to the world that Jesus is real and that Jesus is the, is the Messiah? How you love one another. That's what Jesus says, that love, lo, loving, love among those that belong to Jesus will be the final and ultimate apologetic, as Francis Schaeffer put it. It will be the only proof that we can give to a watching world that Jesus is the Son of God. The only apologetic. So first, that's what Jesus is doing in this context. He's preparing his disciples for his departure. But then notice, secondly, that Jesus seeks to comfort his disciples. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 14. They're devastated. And listen to what Jesus says to them. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... What I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus can tell his disciples are devastated. They don't want to think about loving each other when their master, in whom they've invested their entire lives and being, has told them he's going to leave them. They don't care about that last verse we just talked about. They're incredibly distressed. Their hopes and dreams of being a part of a messianic earthly kingdom, of seeing Israel rescued from the oppressive Romans, of seeing justice and righteousness triumph, has been dashed to pieces. So Jesus seeks to comfort them. So notice, you can write these down if you want to, notice how Jesus comforts them. First, Jesus encourages his disciples to lay their anxieties and troubles aside by trusting him. Lay those troubles aside by trusting in me. That's what, that's a, by the way, that's a sermon in and of itself, right? Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. Lay your anxieties aside. Now, how many, think with me for a second, think about your own life. How many of our own troubles and our own anxieties and our own worries are simply a product of our unwillingness to trust Jesus? Put them in categories, folks. All of your troubles and all of your anxieties, write them all down. How many of them would be remedied by simply trusting Jesus and taking him at his word? That's what Jesus says here, right? How many of our anxieties and worries are simply rooted in unbelief? You lie to yourself and say, I got this. You would rather carry your burdens yourself than simply lay them at the feet of Jesus. Why not instead lay this verse over against every trouble you are carrying? And you might be thinking, yeah, but how? Well, that's what Jesus says. That's what what Jesus does next. He directly confronts his disciples' worries by calling them to faith in himself. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. Make no mistake here, Jesus is calling for the highest of faith. The ultimate faith, right? Trust me in the very same way you trust the Father. Now, that again is an incredible claim. We, we all here ask people at times to trust us, right? 
we all, relationships are built on trust. Henry has to trust me. I have to trust Henry. Um, I have to trust my wife. My wife trusts me. Our relationships are built on trust, right? Whether that's parents asking their children to trust them or bosses asking their employees to trust them. Now, I could here say something crazy like some politicians asking us to trust them. But in the end, in the end, what, what do we know? We know that we are all human beings, and trust can be misplaced, and trust can be abused. But here, though, Jesus is asking us to place our highest allegiance in Him. You trust the Father, trust me in the same way. John has no problem writing that down for us. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So how else does Jesus comfort His disciples? Secondly, Jesus also assures them of their future. He assures them of their future. What? He says, he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I tell you that I go to prepare a place for you? So right here, Jesus tells them that they have a future with Him. He's argued throughout John that He's come from the Father and that He's literally stepped down out of heaven. This is why Jesus can say, I know that there are many rooms in my Father's house. He's been there. He's seen them. He helped build them. Now, just as an aside, as some of your wheels are turning, you're like, well, I thought that says mansions. I'm waiting on a mansion. Our ideas of mansions are so much different than the New Testament idea of mansions. Listen, Jesus says in his Father's house, singular, there are many dwellings or rooms, plural. The New Testament idea is a large house with many rooms that are all connected Together. It is not the idea of one family living out on a hillside in a large house all alone. It is more of the idea of a city where all people live connected in fellowship with one another. And that, by the way, is what we see at the end of the book of Revelation in the new heavens and new earth. So you're not, let me burst your bubble, getting a Kardashian mansion out on a hillside. You're not. You're getting a room in your father's house with Jesus and the Father. And that is far, 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 far better. If it's not, you're not looking at this correctly. The point is being with Jesus. I could care less what anything else happens. And finally, though, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to prepare that place for him place for them. Now, again, Jesus is focusing on their trusting him. He says, if there weren't many rooms, I wouldn't have lied to you and told you there was. He tells them that when he leaves to go to prepare a place, what is he going to do? I'm going to come again, and I'm going to take you to myself that you can be with me again. So you, I'm comforting you by letting you know that this separation is only temporary. And that brings us to verses 4 through 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Look here at verses 4 through 6. He says, and you know, Jesus ends by saying, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, having sought to comfort his disciples, 
Jesus adds that they do, in fact, know the way to where he is going. Now, this greatly puzzles Thomas. And by the way, I am very sympathetic to Thomas. He is one of my favorite disciples. Okay, I'm very sympathetic to Thomas's position. After all, Jesus just told them all he's leaving and they can't go with him. Okay, so Thomas just says, look, Jesus, I don't know where you're going. And if I don't know where you're going, then I clearly don't know the way to get there. And it is in this context that Jesus makes his I am statement. Jesus says, I am the way, Thomas. Thomas, you are looking at the way. So in, this, in the context of this narrative, it should be clear that the emphasis is on the way. So let's break this apart in my last few minutes, and we'll wrap this up. I am the way and the truth and the life. That's who Jesus is. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So first, Jesus reveals himself as the way. I am the way. This, is the, this means the, the path or the road. The Greek is hodos, the path. I am the path or the road. Now, Jesus earlier has already claimed to be the gate. I am the gate or the door for the sheep. Now, Jesus claims that he is the very way to the Father. He is the path to heaven, the path to the presence of the Father. Again, Jesus uses here the definite article. He is the way. Not one way among many. Jesus claims to be the exclusive door that must be entered through and the exclusive path that must be followed. Now, what this means is that Christianity is not a pluralistic, all roads are equal, all roads lead to heaven religion. I want you to think about that for a second. Christianity is not a pluralistic, all roads are equal, all roads lead to heaven, religion. Jesus here claims that there is one way. And by the way, it's not a set of rules or rituals. It's not actually even a religion. It's a way. It's a person. It's Him. That He is the way. Knowing Christ by faith is to know the way. That's what He's telling Thomas. To know me is to know the way. To be in relationship with me is to be on the path to the Father. Jesus is the very way that leads to life and eternity. Now, all of the Old Testament, all of the sorry, all of the New Testament authors take Jesus at his word here, and they unashamedly pronounce Jesus as the exclusive way to salvation. So this isn't Jacob's take on this. Let me give you Peter's take on this in Acts 4:12. In Acts 4:12, Peter stands up and says, To everyone listening, he says, There is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Peter says there's only one name and one way, and it is the name of Jesus. In fact, this was so key to the early church that the first name that was given to followers of Jesus was not Christian. It was followers of the way. That's who they were called. They were called followers of the way at the earliest points in Acts. And if you were to flip over to Acts 17, you will have Paul standing up in, 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 uh, in Athens, at the, at the, at, there in Athens, um, among all the philosophers. And this is what Paul says about Jesus' claim. Paul says in Acts 17.30, 
He says, the times of ignorance, that will be the time before Jesus, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. How many people? All people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who is that? Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul says there's coming a day when God will judge all of the world by this one man Jesus that he raised from the dead. And all men everywhere must repent. They must repent in the name of Jesus. And then Paul exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5 to preach that same message to his congregation. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One God, one mediator, one way. Now many here, I want to say this, okay, many want to complain about this truth and call Christians narrow-minded. Call Christians bigots. When we are simply stating what Jesus himself has said. Now, what should amaze us is not that there are multiple ways, that there would be multiple ways. Somebody will go, I'd be amazed if there was a hundred ways or a thousand ways. Well, there'd never be enough. There'd never be enough. So what should amaze us is not that there aren't multiple ways. What should amaze us is that there is any way at all. Any way at all. Listen. God doesn't owe you eternal life. Amen? God doesn't owe you anything. Okay? By our sin, what we are owed and what we have earned and what we deserve is actually not eternal life, but eternal death. What is incredible, what is the most incredible claim about the gospel is that all people are universally invited to Jesus. You might say, well, Jesus... You Christians are exclusive. Yeah, and we're also universal in that all people are invited to come to Jesus. Jesus will not turn you away, whether you're black, brown, yellow, blue, rich, poor, old, young. It doesn't matter. Jesus stands and says, come to me and find life. Listen, Jesus invites all people to experience forgiveness and eternal life with the Father. And let me say this. So there's no need also in light of this truth. To belittle or mock other religions. There's no need for that among Christians. Have you thought about this? There is no need to mock or belittle other religions who disagree with us. The better way, the better way is to lovingly share the gospel and plead with them to, to consider Christ to look at his life, his teachings, his death, and his resurrection, and come to know him. That doesn't mean we step, that doesn't mean we don't say the truth. Like I've just shared with you the truth. Jesus claims to be the universal way to the Father. And at the same time, I can have compassion on people and invite them to understand the claims of Jesus. But second, also, Jesus doesn't stop at the claim of being the way. Jesus also says, I am the truth. I am the truth. Jesus reveals himself here as our only infallible guide to truth. He is the only infallible guide to truth. Jesus will not lie to us. In fact, the Bible says he cannot lie. Jesus claims here that no other guide can bring you to the Father. I am the way to the Father. I am the truth in order to get to the Father. Peter even tells us that Christ died, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. That's why Jesus came. 
So again, he's either crazy, he's a liar, or he is the very truth that we have all been longing for. And finally, Jesus reveals himself as our only source of life. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Now, follow me here. This is the last thing I'll explain. This statement isn't coming out of nowhere in the Gospel of John. This statement isn't made in a vacuum. Okay? It's, this has been the central claim of Jesus in almost every single chapter of John. And I would argue it is, it is probably the main theme in the Gospel of John. Well, I thought it might have been the love of God. Well, that's one of the main themes. But it's actually that Jesus gives life. That's the main theme of the Gospel of John. Um, Jesus has come to give life because he is life. John 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 4, the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. Why? The water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 5, Jesus says, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He wills. For as the Father has life in Himself, so the Son has been granted to have life in Himself. John 6, the bread of life, right? This is the bread of God who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And what did the people say? Sir, give us this bread. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. That's the point. John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Life. John 10, we just studied this. The thief comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I give them eternal life. This is the point. John 11 Lazarus, I am the resurrection and what? The life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And Jesus says, do you believe it? And here Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John actually ends his whole gospel in John 20 when he says this. These things are written that you may believe in Jesus, that, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's why this gospel exists, so that you will have life in the name of Jesus. This is who He is. This is Jesus' revelation of Himself to His disciples and to you. That He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. And all of us must square this in our hearts and minds. Let me ask you, where do you go? What is your path? What is your path? What is at the end of the road you're walking down? What is truth? Who are you following? Listen, our world says to follow your own truth. Jesus says, no, 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 I am the truth. Don't listen to your heart. Listen to me. 
Your heart's deceitful above all else. Don't trust that. Jesus comes and says, trust me. It is Jesus who says, I am the way, that there is no other path, there is no other truth, there is no other way to eternal life. Jesus, and what's amazing is not simply that claim, it's amazing that Jesus makes that claim and then stands and says, if you believe in me, you can have it all. I'm not going to hold out on you. You can have life in my name. Jesus stands and invites you to life in his name by faith, by believing in his name, by coming to him and seeing him as water, seeing him as bread, seeing him as light and as life. Jesus is life. Jesus is life. To live is Christ. To die is gain. My question is, do you know him? You have to square this. You have to make up your mind. Is Jesus crazy? Is he a liar? Is he a fraud? Or is he actually holding what you've always been looking for? What you've always been longing for? Peace, redemption, forgiveness, life, joy, fellowship, and eternity. Our longings give us away, as C.S. Lewis said. When you find in this life a longing that cannot be satisfied in this life, then the only logical explanation is that, that you were created for a different... You, that longing was meant to be fulfilled in another place, in the presence of Jesus. Do you know Him? This morning we have a brief time of invitation, and it's very simple. Have you come to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life? Or are you trusting yourself? Are you trusting what the world says? Are you trusting what the, what the media tells you or what other, what other spiritual people are saying? That, oh, well, just do this or do that and you'll be fine. I'm trusting the one who lived and died and rose again. Nobody ever spoke like this man. Nobody made these claims like this man. Have you come to Jesus for life? Is he your only hope? We also invite you, if you're looking for a church home, we invite you to be a part of ours. We're not a perfect church, amen? But we're a church that's seeking to follow Jesus to the best of our abilities by His grace. And if Jesus is calling you into ministry, into full-time service, and He's dealing with you, and you're saying, I have this longing and yearning to make Jesus known, then surrender that call. Come and talk to me, or Brother Henry, or Brother Cliff, or Miss Jane, and we can talk to you. Would you pray with me? Father, bless the preaching of your word. May Jesus be glorified and exalted. And we pray, Father, that we would trust him with all of who we are. And Lord, like as Jesus said, may we, Lord, let our, let our hearts not be troubled. May we believe in the Father. May we believe in the Son in the same way we believe in the Father. May we rest in him and trust in him. We pray this in Jesus' name.